State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Nishant Patel, co-founder at AFK Gaming, about his journey and venturing into subscriptions. AFK Gaming is your go-to destination for quality esports content across a variety of games with decades of experience in content writing. Let's begin. Hi, Nishant. How are you? Hi, Lahe. Doing really well. Super excited to be here. Just wanted to say SODP has been one of my go-to resources right from day zero of learning how to be in the publisher industry and, and you know, feels like I've come full circle joining you on this conversation. I'm very excited as well when we reached out to you. It was quite some time ago when we initially spoke, but I'm glad to see you guys be, have been growing and also to see what stuff we can share with our audience today as well. It's going to be a good conversation. So for those who are listening, essentially, Nishan's the founder of AFK Gaming and Esports Industry. And Nishan has a particular expertise and interest as well in sharing to us about some of the strategies around subscription. But before we go into all that, Nishan, why don't you go ahead and let everyone know a bit more about your background and how you started AFK and how it's come to where it is today? Sure. So... We actually launched in about 2012, so that's a long, long time ago. But back then, you know, we really started as a hobby, not so much as a business or as a, as a formal venture, right? The idea was, uh, I personally came from a competitive gaming background, used to play a lot of Dota in the country, used to compete in tournaments locally as well as internationally. But, you know, back then, esports was barely a defined term and we didn't really have a place to sort of converse with fellow folks, didn't have a place to sort of discuss the upcoming tournaments and so on and so forth. So AFK Gaming really started off as a forum for Indian Dota fans to get together and sort of stay up to date about the scene. And one of the things I did to promote this forum back then was I started live streaming matches from the community. And that's when, you know, I ended up transitioning from a pro player into a commentator. Parallelly, I was working at a finance company as an industry research analyst. And at, at the point when commentating in esports made me more money than my traditional job in finance. That's the day I made the switch over and said, hey, maybe I can do this as a full-time freelancer. You know, I want to jump forward a few years. One of my co-founders joined me, Rakesh. You know, he helped me out to basically get out of the bedroom and start running this as a, as, as a, in a little more formal capacity. And then in 2015 or 2016, I met my second co-founder, Siddharth, who's uh, really, he was working on the brand side of things back then. And in 2017, the three of us sat down together and said, hey, you know, it's been a good hobby that we've been running so far on the side. Is there a way to turn this into a full-time business? So the promise I had to make to them was that I'd be able to go out and raise investment to be able to bring them on board as full-time employees or other as full-time co-founders. And, you know, it happened. We managed to raise our first round of funding from our existing clients and friends and family. And since that day, we've we've essentially turned ourselves into, uh, or at least we're trying to build the world's go-to destination for quality esports content. Nice. That's a really good progression. Um, but I guess one cannot unnotice the the struggle as well. So I mean, you you mentioned as well, like when you turn into a commentator and after that, from the time that you started working within the business and, and also your first co-founder started, like, what was that like? What were you mostly working on and how were you able to attract co-founders to help 
bring on the vision that you initially started? Sure. So there's actually a fun story behind. So the struggle is 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 obviously there, and I think that's something that every entrepreneur or every media business has to deal with, given the state of monetization in in the media landscape today. However, that said, you know we built ourselves up as an agency along with being a publisher of sorts. So what really fuels or rather what fueled our growth was the fact that we could marry esports domain expertise with content creation expertise, package that as a service and offer it to teams, tournament organizers, brands, and other industry stakeholders. And that revenue essentially allowed us to continue doing what we loved, which is creating content on afpgaming.com and you know across social media, et cetera. The co-founder story, I'm glad you asked, you know, that it's, it's, so when I was commentating one of my live streams, uh, there was, there was this anonymous user in Twitch chat who showed up and said, Hey, I actually know you in real life. And, you know, he started, I, I had no idea who this person was at the time. And he, he started, you know, speaking about these uncanny things that only someone that actually knew me would, would be able to say. And Eventually, he revealed himself to me as Rakesh, who, you know, both of us used to play in a gaming cafe back in 2008, 2009. And then we met up after that. And he said, I really love what you're doing. I'm not sure I can contribute my time because he was in a full-time day job. But let me contribute some capital and help you get a better computer and, and you know, better resources to start live streaming. So my first co-founder was actually an anonymous, not an anonymous, but, you know, a live streamer who I reconnected with through a live stream and also turned out to be my first seed investor. The second co-founder is also actually a pretty unique story. So we, he, he, Siddharth, that's his name. He was working with a tech company at the time, and he was basically on the side, he was working as a manager for an esports team. So one of the events that we went to cover, one of the local events that we went to cover, you know, we, I bumped into Siddharth over there and he was really, you know, he had some very interesting ideas about how to run an esports team, how to run esports businesses, et cetera. And at that point we said, hey, you know, Siddharth, I want you to come work with us uh, or rather we want to work with you together and, and, and we want to see if your skills as a team manager can be put to use within AFK Gaming. And so he he came on board and we launched an esports team under the AFP Gaming brand. It was called Team Illunes. He actually made that team profitable within his first six months of operations. But eventually, due to conflict of interest between being a publisher and owning a team, we chose to shut that team down. And, and he stayed on ever since as our business development and sales guy. So your first co-founder, what's he, is he still just an investor in the business? Or like what's his role at the moment? He is the technology and product pillar of the company. So everything that's on afkgaming.com is good to see him and his team. And then essentially you are sort of helping to drive more the, the editorial and the vision, I guess, or the day-to-day aspect. Is that, would, you, would that summarize that? Would that be a good summary of the primary roles within the co-founders? Pretty much. So I'm looking at strategy. I've got... Uh, you know, we, we managed to now get some pretty good senior positions for editorial. So I've taken a step back from the content side of things. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at strategy, fundraising, and growth, while Rakesh exclusively looks at technology. And, you know, of course, we sync up on finances and business. And Siddharth looks after monetization, B2B, and the, the client services business. Nice. I think that's, that's a good combination. Like, for publishers out there who are listening to this, I mean, for me, to... Two questions before we go into the big sphere of all the monetization stuff that you guys are working on. 
two things from my end. So would you say like, what's the realistic expectation that your publishers should set themselves when they are looking to really make a publishing business a viable business? Because, you know, you hear recently the fact that a lot of people are now going on Substack, they have a profile, they're making money quickly, or sometimes, you know, people are underestimating the amount of time it takes to actually fully become self-sufficient. So what would be your uh -huh. advice to those people who are looking to create a media brand that's become full-fledged? Great question. I think the first thing, the first lesson that we learned the hard way is that the promise of programmatic ads is a lot more attractive for the advertiser than it is for the publisher. Mm -hmm. So as a publisher, you know, we went in thinking, hey, you know, if we get a lot of gamers, get, get a lot of esports fans consistently coming to our website, we'll make a ton of ad revenue. That's not how it works. The math just, just does not check out. Um, largely because, you know, and maybe this is a personal opinion, it, it feels like niches aren't valued as much through advertising as they would be through other monetization models. And the second important thing that, you know, you want to keep in mind is when you're trying to monetize through your users directly, you're, you're now competing versus, you're essentially competing for a share of their wallet rather than a share of just their attention. And that share of wallet is as coveted by a subscription like Netflix or a subscription like, you know, OTT platforms, as much as you're trying to sell them news or you're trying to sell them content via Substack or via your own publication. So it's a hard battle either way. But it's something that, you know, you've got to take into cognizance early because reach does not necessarily equal revenue in the publishing business. Yeah. So you guys were able to, how, how did you combat that problem? So, like I said, we have a client services vertical. So that essentially supports a lot of the content creation that we do. We do have programmatic ads running on our website as well. However, that's... Uh, it subsidizes the cost. I wouldn't say it absolves, absolves the entirety of the cost of creating content on our site. Yeah. And the, the point I just made about the promise of programmatic being more lucrative for advertisers than publishers, that's a realization we've had just over the last two or three years. In fact, it's a journey that started listening to one of your podcasts. That in itself has led us to start pursuing other forms of user monetization. We haven't launched anything just yet, but we're definitely building and preparing for a way to monetize the user directly, whether that's through subscriptions, whether that's through microtransactions, or whether that's through affiliate. You know, we're not quite ready to reveal those details just yet, but it is a flight towards quality content rather than you know optimizing for speed and and being first to publish something. And what about I guess part of two parts on that? What uh, what's been your experience like with brand partnerships and? Would you ever come to a point where you don't have to rely on the agency model? Because sometimes it, it, there is sometimes some conflicting priorities between focusing on client content versus, you know, your own property. What would you say about those two points? So the way we've, we've structured the business is there's essentially a, a soft firewall between the two sides of the business, right? So P2C and B2B will rarely communicate with each other unless it is to share you know, process knowledge or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and, and that's deliberately done so that there is no, or at least we limit the conflict of interest, right? For instance, if let's say B2B is creating white label content for a tournament and B2C is covering that tournament, but, you know, there's something negative to be covered about that tournament. 
that inside information that B2B has would never go to B2C. And if B2C was working on a story, it would never flag B2B that, hey, you know, we're working on a story that's going to affect your business prospects. And that's, that's it's while we've set it up nicely today, it's not scalable until and unless we choose one or the other, I'd say. And for us, the, the choice is pretty straightforward. B2B is profitable, but not necessarily scalable. B2C yeah. is not profitable, but extremely scalable. And since our ambitions are huge, we're doubling down on B2C while using B2B to keep our heads above water. Interesting. So why don't we deep dive into that then? You mentioned your, your head space was a lot around in subscriptions. What can you share with us on what your journey has been like so far on that? And you said that you might, have, you might be creating a subscription product, but what can you share with us on, on some of that journey that you're on at the moment? Sure. So what we've started to do is, first of all, we've changed our editorial strategy, right? We are no longer optimizing for users and page views and growth in users and page views. That's a fundamental call that we've taken and you know, had to have lots, lots of heavy discussions internally and with investors and other stakeholders about this. The second thing is, you know, or rather an extension of that is that we've started doing, or rather we've, we've increased the library of long form content that we're doing on the website. So a lot more original pieces, a lot more deep dive interviews, essentially a lot of content that goes beyond addressing the what theme of news and diving into the why and the how of it. And the third step that we're taking, and, and this is something that's been running parallelly is we've essentially migrated our entire CMS. So initially we had a custom built CMS that we built in house. We migrated that to a third party CMS provider and the results have been absolutely great for us so far. And, you know, we're also working on a soft wall or a login wall to start collecting first party data from our most engaged readers. We have a lot of trouble analyzing our data today. We are a very small team and, you know, we're not exactly data experts. And the fact that you know, GA data is anonymized data is, uh, it's very difficult to analyze reader behavior for us. So we're trying to get that first party data and start building a community around people that read and consume esports content via AFD gaming and eventually funnel the most engaged users over there into either a subscription model or a paper reads model or something along those lines. Right now we're leaning towards subscriptions, but you know, it is an open-ended question about how we're going to monetize those most, those extremely engaged readers. Interesting. What stage do you think, do you feel that you're up to on potentially using a soft paywall to create that community? Are you in the process of selecting a vendor or are you sort of still trying to plan that out or how far away do you think you're at in terms of your roadmap at the moment? So <laughs> the login wall is essentially uh, scheduled. It was scheduled to go live last week, but of course, you know, there were some delays. So we're basically done with making the soft wall. It's free. It's not, it's not a paywall. It's essentially just a registration wall. Yeah. Um, that'll be going up hopefully this week. You know, actually I'm hoping it goes up today or tomorrow. And then, you know, we're going to use the next three to six months to optimize for the readers behind that registration wall yeah. and just straight up, you know, give them a phone call and see how much they'd be willing to pay and, and why they'd be willing to pay, what they'd be willing to pay for. We've identified vendors for the paywall. We have had some initial conversations as well. And actually, you know, part of our CMS has the functionality for paywalls built in as, as an, as an add-on to it. So we might just consider going with them, but it's too soon to decide the vendor. You know, right now we're focusing on just 
understanding what our users would pay for, and then we'll figure out what's the best way to get them to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you keep going back and forth with changing things around, then that obviously upsets some of your existing users and you want to keep them happy and you obviously want to develop your expertise as well. So no, I totally get where you're coming from. I've had my fair share of challenges on that in changing back and forth and yeah, I wouldn't advise that as well. So <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from. Just one more thing on the subscription and I want to just pivot our conversation a little bit on the e-gaming landscape because there's, there's quite a bit to unravel there as well for other people that aren't necessarily publishing like you guys are. Now with the subscription and, and monetization eventually for that, and even, even with the monetization of the programmatic, like audience are you relying on at the moment? I mean, I know you guys are based in India, but are you relying on the international audience or are you relying on US only? Because I know RPMs are much higher in the US than in other countries. Like what's sort of your, because in terms of building quality audience, who are, where are you relying on that for? Or do you think that that's agnostic in your space? Right. So it's very counterintuitive and maybe this is an esports thing specifically. We target interest and not geography. Okay. So for instance, we could have a, a Dota fan that's, you know, based out of Philippines, based out of Singapore, based out of the US. We're agnostic to that. As long as they're enjoying Dota content in the English language or, you know, Counter-Strike content in the English language, they're all very welcome to our website. We will not optimize for, you know, hey, North American readers because, you know, they're considered to be more quality users by advertising standards. So what we're really trying to do is identify that set of users that's consuming our content the most and then derive value directly from them rather than trying to optimize our business for value that's been assigned based on existing advertising systems. So yeah, to, you know, just to put it as a in a single point, Regional targeting or geographic targeting is a consequence of interest targeting and not the other way around. Well, it does the, I mean, that, I'm really happy that that's the case, 100%. Like, I'm all for that and I'm really happy for that. But, like, are you able to then value an individual user the same across the board, irrespective of country? Because obviously there's that different buying power or, you know, different, you know, depending on if you're going to go programmatic as well, like advertisers are going to pay differently for different ads, right? So how have you sort of countered that? Or is that maybe that's something that I need to learn from you? Like, I'm interested to hear. No, absolutely. So the, again, the way we think of it, right, is if we boil it right down to user behavior, right? And we're all esports fans, we're gamers that play these games. We're already used to shelling out money for digital content, be it in-game skins or you know, intangibles that don't really do much other than making your profile look good. So, and, and, and the pricing for these intangibles is, is generally not differentiated by country. So if I wanted to buy a skin in Dota 2 from India, or if I wanted to buy it from North America, I would still have to pay the same price. We think that you know, a similar logic would apply to offering news content about Dota 2 to a reader in the North American area versus a reader in, let's say, India. Yeah. We're not trying to optimize for you know, users based on their propensity to pay. Again, it's just going right back to if we value our content at a certain price, that value should be paid for irrespective of 
and this is going to sound a little abrasive, but irrespective of the customer's ability to pay, because that's the only way that quality content can be created. No, I mean, power to you. I mean, everyone has to know their worth. I mean, we're not, if you're too, I mean, it's just about expectations. If you're too far from the expectation of what the market is saying, then then obviously that's when you have to revise your pricing. But if you're realistic within what the market is potentially willing to pay and, and also realize that you're paying for quality content, then, you know, as we, we've seen time and time again this year, with a lot of content creators, people who are embedding memberships, then that's, that's the value you're going to get. So, I mean, power to you, man. I think the other thing that I just want to touch on, on regarding the audience as well is about language targeting. Have you considered even like doing translations or thinking about that in order to improve the quality of engagement for your audiences? Or do you think that English is global enough to just cover that for now? No, we definitely do want to do regional content as well. But again, it's interest-driven rather than, I would say, geography-driven. So for example, a game like Mobile Legends, right? It has a really popular esports scene in the Philippines as well as Indonesia. Now, Philippines speaks, uh, or rather Philippines has a lot of, you know, English language speakers. So we may not need to do content in their language, which is Tagalog. But Indonesia does not have a lot of English speakers. And since we do want to tap into the Mobile Legends audience, we will at some point need to start doing content in Bahasa. So that's kind of how we're thinking of it. Unfortunately, though, you know, being a pretty small company and being, you know, very, very focused on our economics and making sure that, you know, longevity of the business is primary is key. In the absence of an external fundraise, we're not going to go down the route of expanding uh, needlessly into languages. We'll take it one step at a time, starting with the English language esports enthusiasts. No, that's, that makes sense. And I appreciate you reiterating the importance of focusing on the audience versus um, interests. So, Cool. Let's talk about more what's happening in the e-gaming publishing space. What sort of changes have happened in the past couple of years that is key to how you're telling your content to your audiences? Like, do you think, and a second question to point to that, do you think like the advent of like short reels or like short form video, is there any impact to that as well? Particularly because I read an article recently saying that I think it was TikTok that actually is now outperforming Twitch in, in terms of overall engagement due to the you know, rise of short video from them. Right. So, yeah, I definitely think short video is, is here to stay. Unfortunately, TikTok is banned in my country, so we use alternatives. In fact, uh, there are a lot of local ones that have come up over here, but uh, a lot of our short video content is distributed via Instagram Reels. Yeah. Um, short video feels like a great tool that's powering the creator economy, but there seems to be some ambiguity about how it's going to power publishers per se. And you know, let let's let's acknowledge it. Creator economy, the the entire creator economy is an indirect competitor, if not a direct one, to the publisher economy. So we, the way we see it is, you know, is there a way to sort of partner with the creator economy to create news content that appeals to their fan bases via short form video. So that, that's kind of how we're looking at it today. We've definitely seen some interesting traction on our Instagram, you know, from what was clocking barely a couple of hundred views 
is now clocking close to 10,000, 20,000 views per short video and growing rapidly. So this is over the course of three to six months. And all of this with just essentially two people working on it. We're definitely keen on seeing how to grow that piece of content distribution for us. But again, as publishers, focusing on eventually serving content on our own owned platforms via our subscription model, this is all top of the funnel. So all the short videos, everything that we do needs to eventually lead back to afkgaming.com and from there into the paywall. So that's kind of how we look at this whole ecosystem. So do you think that continually partnering with those content creators, you know, via owned, owned platforms, i.e. a website, or how do you think you can further develop the relationship so that you're not sort of at the mercy of content creators? No, so it's, there's two sides to it, right? If, if we look at this as a pure marketing play, then it's, it's pretty straightforward. You, you, you've got a marketing budget, you allocate some of it towards influencer marketing or creator marketing, and, and that then turns into leads for your premium subscription. But if you look at it from the other end, because we've got, and we're building out an editorial team as the FK Gaming and, and not as individual creators, you know, a la Substack, we're trying to build that, that identity that you get quality content about esports at AFK Gaming. And yes, you know, XYZ creators are a part of AFK Gaming today. So it, but we're, we're, we've definitely learned. And again, this comes from my background of being a commentator, right? There was a good four to five years of AFK Gaming equals Nishant. And people had a very hard time disassociating the two, even when we grew to a team of 25 people. So having learned that lesson a long, long time ago, we're now trying to build all of our systems in place with AFK Gaming's identity being at the front of it. And then the creator sort of augmenting or boosting that identity. So what are the things that you've done now? I think that's a really, really good point that you brought up because I, I guess it's that founder syndrome or like that, 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 yeah, brand identity things. Like what have you found that has sort of now made AFK as its own, in its own right, a unique brand with the systems that you put in place, for example, if you can give us a few examples. Yeah, absolutely. So today, you know, so a lot of uh, publishers or a lot of esports companies will look at esports as a whole. We look at esports as a collection of different game titles. So our taxonomy right from the start has been hyper-targeted. So for instance, what our website has a separate section for Dota content entirely, a separate section for mobile esports content, etc., And that extension also goes to our social media pages. So, you, you know, a, a lot of our traffic comes via Facebook because we, that's where, you know, we've been really strong so far. And we don't necessarily, we don't have one Facebook page called AFK Gaming. We have an AFK Gaming page for Dota. We have an AFK Gaming page for Counter-Strike. And content is intentionally distributed only where we think it's likely to have the highest engagement and click-through rates. So the identity for AFK Dota exists, the identity for AFK CS exists, and underlying that identity is the identity of each creator or each, each writer or editor within those subsections. That's, that's one thing that we put in place basically from day zero. The second thing is, you know, like you said, founder syndrome, there's actually three co-founders in the company, right? So we had, we had to start putting, you know, my, my partners on, on the front, on panels, on discussions, et cetera. Today, it's 
I'm very happy to say that, you know, whenever a business needs services, they no longer call me. They will directly call my co-founder, Siddharth. And if someone wants to pitch us a new technology to integrate, they will directly call Rakesh. So, you know, I'd say that was a little bit of a PR and a, and a branding exercise we had to do. Organic, of course, but it, it did need to be done so that AFK Gaming is looked at as a company of great individuals rather than just one individual operating under a, a name AFK Gaming. Nice. No, I really love the summary. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that genuinely. Coming back to the point of content creators, uh, I feel like as well, a lot of the content creators do have a team behind them. Do you feel like maybe that's what's going to be the stopping point for them in terms of growing and becoming a sustainable brand? Or is it just purely like creating that brand for their own legacy? Like, what, what do you think, like a, a, a big company under that name to create their own legacy? Like, what are your thoughts around that, particularly in the e-gaming and publishing space? Mm, it's, it's a good question. And I, I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but it's the one that I believe in today. So it's really hard to monetize your con content unless you're already famous, right? And let's just ignore the monetization aspect for a moment. It's also really hard to consistently put out quality content as an individual without capital to begin with. There's a lot that goes into writing a piece of content or, or creating a video that's worth paying for by the end user, right? And that requires more than just, usually requires more than just one person. So that's really the strength that AFK as a brand and as a company can offer. We offer one, the distribution via everything that AFK and its collective creators have created over the years. And two, we offer support infrastructure, right? So let's say a story needs to be run by legal. Let's say, you know, a story needs to be copy edited before it goes out. A story needs to be, you know, fact checked before it goes out. These systems and mechanisms are already in place in-house. And, you know, there are processes that have been set up so that, you know, we make as few mistakes as possible. These are things that individual creators tend to underestimate. And, you know, your credibility is gained over years, but lost in, in a second, right? So you have to try and minimize your chances of saying something stupid or writing something abrasive or writing something offensive, you know, especially in a fan base that's, that's young and enthusiastic about their favorite teams and favorite players. Essentially, what we're doing is we're creating that safety net. And at some point, if, if let's say a creator grows large enough, right? And if we are monetizing their content directly via the users, I see no reason why we shouldn't be able to keep them happy, both financially as well as via support systems, as much as you know they would receive while they were going out. And of course, this is, you know, without getting into the technicalities, this would include things like you know, revenue share, this would include things like ESOPs for the most talented employees, this would include things like, you know, the ability for, I don't know, a very engaged reader to tip the writer directly via AFK rather than tipping AFK itself. So these are the kind of things or features that we've got, you know, it's very pie in the sky right now and it's something that we're building towards, yeah. but uh, I think it's, it's, there is a way to make it happen. Thank you so much. Thanks again for that response. I, I mean, it's, it's pretty solid and uh, I mean, I can see some of the limitations and advantages and considerations that anyone has to consider. So um, looking ahead, what's exciting you at the moment? So this is extremely niche, but mobile esports. So for the last 10, 12 years, PC has predominantly been where most competitive gaming has happened. Yeah. But 
the silent giant that's been growing under everyone's radar has been mobile esports in Asia. What a lot of people have missed is the fact that the next generation and the current generation of gamers that's growing up, they started their gaming experience on mobile phones, not on PCs, not on PlayStations, not on consoles at all, right? And for them, the transition from one mobile game to another mobile game is a lot smoother than a transition or you know, a so-called upgrade from mobile to desktop or PC or, or console or whatever. So what we've been doing is very heavily looking at mobile esports titles in Southeast Asia. And before you know, the world started reporting on it, we got in there and we started building an identity as, you know, hey, this is the place that offers you content about mobile esports. That decision was probably one of the best decisions we've taken in our life. And we had to fight a lot about it internally before we took that decision. And, you know, without sharing too many numbers, we, we saw like 30x growth in our traffic over six to eight months. And at that point, we're like, okay, this is it. We've hit our niche. And, you know, this is the future of esports. The next thing that's really exciting us is an extension of that, which is cloud gaming. So the promise of cloud gaming is that you could have a PC quality experience on your mobile phone, or you know, you could have like a really, really good experience of gaming on, on a simple device. That reduces the cost uh, barrier for people trying to get into gaming and eventually competitive gaming. We think that could sort of be a catalyst for the entire space if done right. But you know, again, I'm not very savvy with the technology behind it. So all I can do is cross my fingers and hope that it comes quickly. What other devices, like simple devices, are you referring to? Is it, is it anything besides mobile? Yeah, so essentially, the way I understand it is that you need a great, a really good graphic card to play a, a, a high-end game, right? Yeah. And not just mobile, even if you're playing on a laptop, you're, you know, you can't possibly have the best gaming experience unless you've got a really good graphic card sitting in there and a good processor and so on and so forth. But via cloud gaming, someone else is taking that load for you or, you know, an external... Uh, or rather all that processing is being done in the cloud. So essentially I could have my crappy work laptop and still have the best gaming experience for a fraction of the cost that I would be paying to have it today. That promise is, is you know, it, it's utopian today, but it's slowly becoming a reality from, you know, the likes of what we're seeing with, with attempts that, that are being made by Google, NVIDIA and a few others. Gotcha. And how about how about AI? Like, um, I think is is AI seeping through competition gaming, like competitive gaming at the moment, or are you seeing anything on that on the publishing side? Like, where are you seeing AI at the moment coming into the fore? Mm, honestly, this is not my forte, um, but we've seen. Uh, so there's a lot of not necessarily on the publishing side, but on the esports side, we're seeing a lot of AI-enabled tools to help professional teams perform better. Mm -hmm. It's still early days, but there has been some success around it. On the publishing side, personally, I think you know the data sets, or at least on the subscription publishing side, the data sets are going to be too small to do any meaningful work with AI. But as that grows, you know, there's definitely going to be use cases that would add value and eventually help optimize subscription funnels. But again, it's not necessarily something that AI might be the best solution for, but it's a solution that we're going to need sooner rather than later. Makes sense. I guess watch this space, basically. So 
how are you looking with you know with COVID and everything else happening? How are you looking to end off the year to say, man, we've hit our goals? What's what's the one or two key things that you want to do? Well, to put it very briefly, we have a we have a target number of registered and active users that we want coming to our site. So we've we've defined what an active user looks like. It's you know, it's more than just a user that has X page views. It's more than just a user that spends so much time on the site. So we're really, really boiling it down to, hey, you know, if a user spends so much time and has so many page views and has, uh, you know, at least scroll through X percentage of each story, that's an active user that's likely to convert into a paying user. Let's get, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 of those users first, and then let's give them a call and see what they'd be willing to pay for. So that's how we're approaching it today. And this is a very short-term goal. Uh, you know, we're trying to execute this within the next three months itself. The mm -hmm. longer-term goal is, you know, use all of this information and knowledge to actually launch possibly the first paywall esports content in the world. And, you know, of course, with that, there's going to be a lot of people that say, hey, the internet is free. Why are you charging money for, for content? And we'll have to do a lot of selling and a lot of uh, really mindset-changing within eSports to try and get people accustomed to paying for quality content. So these are the two key challenges that we're taking on. And these are, you know, within the next three to six months. What are, what are some of the things you want to, to look at in, in terms of trying to get people into that mindset of paying for subscription content? Do you have any initial thoughts on that at the moment? I mean, in a utopian world, I'd love to sit with everyone, open the Excel sheet and tell them this is why, you know, you should be paying for content so that your, your favorite writers can keep creating good content. But in reality, I think it's going to have to be a lot of organic and word of mouth. We'll have to find a way to equip our most engaged users to be evangelists for our model and for our content behind the paywall. And this might be a bit of a digression, but as important as it is to create quality content, it's, I, I'd say it's equally important to protect that quality content on the internet as well, because there's a lot of ways to essentially, you know, break paywalls and, and, and have people consume your con content outside of it. So that's a, that's a battle that honestly, I, I, I won't say we're not looking forward to it, but it's one that we're not entirely prepared for today. Sure, you know, let me just do what every esports industry stakeholder would do in, in given the situation. Like, you know, your, you know, the stereotype that esports fans and gamers are nerdy losers sitting in their bedrooms is horribly wrong. We are all pretty much normal people. We just grew up watching people play video games rather than, or rather, in addition to watching people playing sports. I think that's that's the one thing I'd love to throw out there. And the second is, you know, I think there's a gamer in everyone. So it's never too late to try and tune into a live stream for a tournament and then see if that, if that catches your eye so that you start playing those games. And of course, you know, if you're looking for quality content, shameless plug, head over to our website, aftgaming.com. That's it. And on that, let's conclude. And, and I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the raw and authentic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.